You're listening to. And hey, you're listening to Books and Bobo, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And it is time for our October 2022 mid-month check-in, where we go over the latest Asian and Asian American book and publishing news. Um, Rira, how's your spooky month going? It's going pretty well. Um, before we started recording this podcast, we were just catching up, and I was telling Marvin that I went to K-pop's version of the Fire Festival. <laughs> I went to Camp Ballet, hashtag remember. Um, it was... Thankfully, I didn't pay money, but I felt so bad for the people who did and had half of the entire festival's lineup just not show up because of visa problems. And yeah, it was a hot mess. However, I went for Chunga and Epic High and they were there and I had time of my life on the floor. It was great. How about you, Marvin? How has um, your Spooktober been? Spooktober has been all right. Um, I am actually, I mean, by the time you listen to this episode, I will have been married in Santa Barbara. Um, we're doing a courthouse civil ceremony. Um, you know, you'd think having a smaller ceremony would be easier. And I guess, relatively speaking, it is easier than having a giant, like, quote unquote, traditional wedding, but still a lot of stuff to take care of. And, you know, we don't have the added assistance of a wedding party. We're kind of doing everything ourselves uh but yeah it's been it's been it's been fun and i'm excited to get it done i guess um, <laughs> to get it done wow so romantic but yeah i totally understand what like the whole wedding business thing like it can be so stressful even if it is like a small ceremony or um you only have like a handful of people because you still have to order a bunch of stuff you still have to schedule a lot of things it's really live event planning which yeah. you know you and I were both talking about how I mean, terrible it can be <laughs> I mean we were talking about Camp LA and it gave me um I didn't realize what it was when you posted about it um I'm not exactly plugged into the K-pop or even live event scene these days since I've stopped working for collaboration but I do remember those days of planning large events trying to manage 10 different artists making sure we sell tickets making sure we fill seats the panic that comes when you realize that oh you have like a week left and you still need to fill half this theater i can't imagine trying to fill that rose bowl and i don't know i have no sympathy over people trying to throw a k-pop concert and not not doing their research you know yeah um but at the same time i do feel bad for all of the people who didn't get what they paid for. And that's that's always the worst thing. Yeah, and it was also really expensive, which is why I said <laughs> it was like so sketchy in the first place because I saw like pre-sale packages going for like 500 something dollars and I was like, "What?" Like I have like I've been to a lot of concerts in my life and the most I have paid is like 400 and that is like VIP like towards <laughs> barricade. <laughs> so, I'm just like, "What are they charging?" And like they they were charging money for like meet and greets and I'm like I hope people got refunded for that because there is no artist for them to meet and greet. They're not here. <laughs> yeah, good luck to everyone who has to go through that process now because it's it's not fun especially when 
<laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm not even sure the the organizers have the money to pay people back. No, they don't. Yeah. Well, that's why now I do podcasts because now all I have to worry about is my gear and my co-hosts. And you know, Rira is very reliable and um, is someone I can trust, which is great. Been in the trenches together, so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, we're not here to reminisce about the good old days doing live events around LA. Um, we're here to talk about the latest book news. And as always, Viewer has compiled um, all of the latest book and publishing news from sources like Publishers Weekly, Twitter, and other social media. And man, we have another really long list today. So I'm excited to get into it. Um, so yeah, let's start off as always with our publishing updates. Um, Rira, why don't you start us off with our first publishing deal? All right. So our first publishing deal is Putnam preempted North American rights to Carissa Chen's debut novel, Home Seeking. Pitched in the vein of Pachinko, the novel is a sweeping tale about two childhood sweethearts in Shanghai who are separated by war in 1947 as 16-year-olds and reunited by chance in their 70s at a 99 ranch market in Los Angeles. At press time, Home Seeking sold in eight international deals. And for those of you guys who uh, don't know, Carissa Chen is the editor-in-chief of Hyphen Magazine, which is a very famous nonprofit news and culture publication about Asian Americans. And there isn't a publication date set yet. I think I still have some of my old Hyphen Magazines. I used to um, I used to subscribe to them when they did their – do they still do their print magazine? I don't think they – I don't know if they still do print. I think they're digitally um, maybe, now, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they've phased completely digitally now. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a time when they did do like quarterlies or um, like, I, yeah. I don't know how frequently they, they publish. But <laughs> uh, Hyphen, yeah, it's a great magazine. A lot of authors that we've interviewed on the show have been in Hyphen. So Yeah. Um, and about the story itself, it sounds... It sounds like a pachinko. It sounds like a a multi-generational story about, you know, perseverance in a time of war. Um, 1947 would mean that they got separated during the Civil War, not World War II, um, which was a time when a lot of families got separated, my family included. I I think it's just so funny that they reunited at a 99 Ranch market. (laughs) Like, of all places to reunite, I'm like, yeah, that is a place where you would... I mean, your local cultural ethnic supermarket is probably one of the cultural hubs of any enclave community. It's either that or like a dim sum restaurant where you will run into <laughs> or someone a dim who, sum restaurant. you know, you haven't seen in a long time. I think my mom ran into one of her elementary school friends once at a at a supermarket. And yeah, I can see it. I used to specifically go to H-Mart, like back when I lived in Georgia, I would go during times when I knew like no one would be there because I didn't want to run into anybody new. <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah sounds pretty epic so i'm excited to um to find out when it's coming out um all right next up andrew mcmeal publishing acquired cherry zong's red a ya graphic novel that's a twisted version of little red riding hood red lives in a forest that has been dying for years and her grandmother instructs her to hunt the monsters at the cost of the decay until she meets a wolf girl named sill as she begins to develop a relationship with her Red begins to uncover the somewhat sinister truth behind everything she's ever known. In a story pitched as Tangled meets Princess Mononoke, publication is set for 2024. This sounds sapphic. 
Is yeah. it sapphic? I I love it. I think um, so. I think I've read a couple like manga stories that have similar story beats um, that also have to do with like Little Red Riding Hood motifs. So um, yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. And you know, um, this is this is the part where I um, have to admit that I have never seen a Princess Mononoke yet. What? Yeah. Do you have HBO? Like I they do. have it all. I know. On- Studio Ghibli is kind of my cultural blind spot. I think I've explained it here before, or, or if not here, then on my other podcast, Good Pop. But um, it's one of those things where I know I'll like it. I know I'll love it when I watch it, which is why I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> if that makes oh, sense. Marvin. I mean, that makes sense. But also, I wouldn't put too much of an expectation because obviously, like, filmmaking has changed, even if it is 2D animation, storytelling-wise. When I revisited it not that long ago, I was like, oh, it really does get heavy-handed at times. However, beautifully animated, the character <laughs> development's so good, definitely worth watching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I am excited to read this, and it's graphic novel, so um, yeah. I'm dying to see all of the, the cool, grim art that <laughs> will show up for the for the monsters. All right, next up, in an exclusive submission, FSG bought world rights to Serena Lee's debut YA graphic novel, tentatively titled Prodigy, illustrated by Julia Kuo. The book follows Japanese-American Ashima Shiraishi's swift ascent in the climbing world as a child prodigy and how she dealt with the immense pressure from her parents, her peers, and the media spotlight to continually be the best. Publication is planned for fall 2025. Wow. Yeah, um, Ashima. I'm actually pretty familiar with Ashima's story because I have a friend who is doing a documentary about her and her family. Oh, nice. Yeah, and yeah, she is one of like the best wall climbers in in the sport. She's like she's really young, and her dad is pretty like he, she's he's like a tiger dad too, like a climbing tiger dad. So um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of story there, and I'm excited to see more people be aware of her story yeah there's also there's another book that uh ashima was featured in i forgot what it was but like this is not the first time we've said uh ashima's name on this podcast so (laughs) i'm expecting a couple couple of books about her in the next uh two three years yeah always great to have more ashima content in the world (laughs) um all right the next up in a two book deal for world rights capstone acquired the magic lunchbox the first title in a debut chapter book series called Ben Lee by Hannah Kim. After moving from L.A.'s Koreatown to a Michigan suburb, fourth grader Ben Lee is anxious to make new friends. But when some kids at school act grossed out by the homemade kimbap in his lunchbox, Ben makes an impulsive wish, and soon strange things start happening. Emily Peck will illustrate publication is slated for fall 2023. Ah, uh, yes, the lunchbox. Why would you make fun of kimbap? I feel like out of all the things to be yeah. made fun of i feel like kimbap is like the easiest to just like pass off as something normal you know it's like oh it's sushi yeah, i mean california rolls are so ubiquitous um it doesn't smell bad yeah. quote-unquote bad like it just smells like rice and sesame oil yeah these I mean, kids they th- don't know what's good that just shows you how uncultured these michiganers are because they don't even know the basic good stuff. It must be like in the deep, deep suburbs of Michigan because there are a lot of Koreans in <laughs> Michigan. <laughs> 
I feel like all my non-Asian friends go to Asian grocery stores more often than I do. Because like whenever I go over to their houses, they always have like all the like ice cream and snacks that you have oh. to get at like H Mart. And I'm like, I like I do not have that in my fridge. Like well, you are more <laughs> well, that's just because Asian snacks are superior. That's just a fact. I guess it's not all that special to me because I grew up with it. <laughs> but uh, for them, it's like a must-have in their fridge. Yeah. But it's interesting. Um, as we have grown into, uh, I guess, like I, I guess like when Asian things became trendy and cool, it's made it more accessible and acceptable for the non-Asians to uh, consume our food. So Yeah. I mean, now they know what to buy, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the more stuff that they buy, like like the prices fluctuate, you know, like mm. it goes higher and it's just like, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I know. And it's like when David Chang plugged Obi Bear on his show, everyone was like, damn it. Now they all know. All know our secrets. I know. All right. Next up, Running Press Kids acquired My Mama is a Work of Art by debut author illustrator Hannah Akabato, a love letter from a child to their mama and the story she tells and the tattoos she wears. Publication is planned for spring 2024. This is kind of cute. Um, you know, also normalizing tattoos. Body art. On yeah. parents. I think it's great. Yeah, especially in Asia, tattoos are kind of seen as like part of gang culture. And of course, that's not... That's not true anymore. I see so many um, like Gen Z kids with tattoos. I've seen so many millennial parents with uh, tattoos in, uh, in <laughs> Asia, but it's really hard to shake like that perspective from like the older generation. So I'm really glad that there is a picture book that is showing that yeah, like not only your dads can have tattoos, but your like millennial Asian moms can also have tattoos, and it's fine and. They don't have to um, fit into this traditional mold of like Asian beauty standards. Yeah. So, congratulations to Hannah again. <laughs> All right. Next up, Dutton has bought at auction Nina Cheetah's The Healers of Harlem, the lost history of the Black women medical pioneers in America's first desegregated city hospital. From the creator of Instagram account, Nina Draw Scientist. Um, this middle grade narrative follows the women doctors and nurses who broke new ground personally, socially, and medically in one of America's most historic and influential neighborhoods. Publication is projected for early 2025. This sounds great. Yeah, Nina Cheetahs. I remember seeing a lot of her illustrations for, um, what is it, like for uh, Asian American Heritage Month, she... Um, like a lot of her artwork was featured in articles where they were celebrating Asian scientists uh, who made like, you know, life-changing discoveries or inventions that have been overshadowed because of patriarchy and racism. Uh, so I'm really glad that she has an actual book that's coming out. This this focuses more on um, Black women medical pioneers, as you can tell from the title. Yeah, and it's also doing that thing I really love that is servicing American history that's not from the lens of the mainstream. You know, we always talk about how not everyone learns about things like internment, um, Chinese Exclusion Act. And, you know, while we may learn about Harlem as a neighborhood, we don't know anything about this hospital, this first hospital in Harlem that was run by Black women. So, um, yeah, I think it's really cool that books like this um, shines a light on the history. 
Yeah, yeah. And the fact that this is a middle grade narrative, that's really nice too, because it's told in a way where young people can uh, just pick up on all of the historic details uh, pretty easily. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty great gift for uh, for teachers and librarians um, and like new parents. Yeah. Okay, so next up, learner imprint Carol Rhoda bought The Red Car to Hollywood, a YA novel by Jenny Liu, the author of Girls on the Line and Like Spilled Water. In 1920s Los Angeles, 16-year-old Ruby Chan is struggling to balance her first-generation parents' expectations with her own dreams. Her plans shift when she strikes up a friendship with a young movie star named Anna Mae Wong. Publication is planned for spring 2025. Yeah, more anime Wong. I <laughs> like a couple of years ago, I feel like no one knew who she was, but now there have just been like so many biographies and like children's books. And um, there's also like mentions of her on like TV shows as well. So I'm really glad that like more people are getting to know uh, more about anime Wong, truly pioneer in um, Asian American Hollywood history. Yeah, and, you know, because this is about young people heading to Hollywood, this will be kind of a more aspirational type of story. Um, you know, we don't need to get into how no, we Anna don't Mae need Wong to. was treated by the entertainment yeah. industry um, during her career. But I think, you know, the story sounds like it's going to be an exploration of that age-old Asian-American struggle between wanting to be an artist versus what our parents want for us. Um, but mixed in with 1920s Hollywood, um, you know. You're a big fan of that that uh, fashion era. I am. I'm also a little worried about these two girls going across the country in 1920s America, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, America was even more racist back then. Oh. If, if you're a person of color, don't travel back in time. It's just <laughs> not a good idea. Good. Not great. Not great. All right. Um Next up, Levine Querido acquired world rights to author-illustrator Kat Min's third picture book, The Shadow and the Ghost, a tale about the unlikely friendship between a shadow and a ghost. Publication is slated for spring 2024. A shadow and a ghost. Do ghosts have shadows? No. And is that the shadow ghosts, that I'm thinking but about? Are, but are ghosts shadow-like? Oh. Yes. So are they both ghosts then? Just different types. And can of ghosts? a shadow be a ghost? Yeah. Mm. These are the questions we ask when we don't have as much to go off of. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it sounds, but it sounds like very a, cute. Sounds like a fun, um, you know, a fun book that would be a great gift for a future Spooktober. So I'm correct, Catman, on her third picture book. Yes. All right, next up, in an exclusive submission, Harper Teen acquired Divining the Leaves by Shweta Dakrar. In this contemporary YA fantasy inspired by Hindu mythology, two teens find an escape from the troubles of their mortal lives in the magical woodland realm of the nature spirits known as Yakshas. But straying too deep into the forest is always more dangerous than it seems. Publication is slated for summer 2023. Ooh, Hindu mythology fantasy. Um... Again, I feel like I've seen this story before, but the fact that it's inspired by Hindu mythology, it makes it way more interesting. It's always about teens who run away into the dark, mystical woods in these types of stories. Yeah. Okay. Um, next up, Wednesday Books bought Letters for My Brown Self by Sarah Mukal Rana. 
a debut YA novel in prose and verse pitched as The Hate You Give meets The Poet X, exploring Islamophobia post-9-11 when a Muslim spoken word artist's letters about a politician go viral. She must decide whether to stay silent or use her voice. Publication is scheduled for winter 2024. I do remember when spoken word poetry was like a huge thing on YouTube. <laughs> I think it comes and goes. I think, you know, um, the poet from Biden's inauguration ignited a fever for it too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can picture the conflict in this story because, you know, the emotional political messages of a spoken word artist mixed when like post 9-11 paranoia is a very volatile combination. And I think, you know, telling stories in this time period is important because it's a time period where even the best of people or people you think have the best intentions, sometimes those ugly feelings emerge and how we deal with that, how we reconcile that and how we decide to be better is really, I think, the struggle that America is going through right now, to be honest. So, so yeah, I think this is an important story to tell. Right. Next up, Knopf bought world rights to Newbery Honor author Christina Suntornvat's picture book, Leo's First Vote, illustrated by Isabel Roxas. Leo's class is holding a mock election, and his father is participating in his very first election as a naturalized U.S. citizen. Together, father and son learn about voting in America and affirm that everyone's vote is important. Publication is set yes. for fall 2024. Teach kids about oh, voting so rights cute. and how everyone deserves to vote because that is a lesson that not everyone learns. Also, uh, teach your kids about how the government <laughs> is preventing people from voting. <laughs> um yeah, like, this is really cute. I didn't become a naturalized citizen until, like, I was 20, I would say. So uh, I didn't really get to vote until, vote in, like, my first presidential election for, like, a long time. I didn't get to vote. So, um, yeah, voting is very exciting. It was, <laughs> I, like, I was just like, I'm so excited. I'm going to, like, get my sticker I'm going to like wait in line, even though I could like mail my ballot in, but I want to be there in person for the first time and the last time because I hate standing in lines. But um, yeah, just like a father and son, just uh, I wonder what just a father and son like learning about American voting systems. That sounds really cute overall. And I wonder what the what position the father. Oh, no, I think the father's voting for the first time. Oh, voting. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, mock election and yeah. his father is participating. <laughs> okay, I thought he was running for office, but he's not. No, it's about um, their, both of their first times participating in democracy. All right, next up. Um, Learner Imprint Millbrook acquired World Rights to Mommy King by Jacqueline Chow Lowry and illustrated by Kristen Sora. This picture book celebrates the rags to riches stories of Man Mun Luk, the Chinese immigrant behind the well-loved Filipino noodle soup known as Mami. Um, publication is planned for spring 2024. I've never had Mami. Me so neither. I'm gonna Google what it looks like. Yeah, let's look let's look at what it looks like. It look legit looks like Yeah, it looks like a any egg noodle Asian soup or noodle soup. Um, it looks good though. I would have mommy. Let's go get mommy one sometime. There's a 
the great thing about being in LA is there's tons of great Filipino places. That, Everything is at our fingertips. <laughs> um, this sounds great. I'm always always love learning about new foods, um, especially in picture book form. All right. Uh, next up, Tundra Books acquired in an exclusive submission, World Rights to Once Upon a Sari by Zinia Watwani and illustrated by Avani Duvetti. Uh, the picture book is about a girl who learns the stories that each of her mother's saris tell. Publication is slated for spring 2024. Sounds like a yeah. very colorful book. Yeah. Not much to go off of, but, uh, you know, picture book. I mean, I can, I can just picture, you know, like... The girl going through her mother's closet and being like, oh, like, when did you wear this? What is this for? And then, like, <laughs> yeah. memories are tied to each uh, each clothing. So, uh, yeah, again, a theme that we love in especially um, diaspora immigrant Asian American stories is the realization that, yeah, our parents were people, too. And they have histories that go beyond being the people that nag us all the time. Yep. All right. Our next deal, uh, Little Brown has bought two projects from Newberry and Caddicott Honor author Grace Lin, titled Chinese Menu and Little Night Says Goodnight. The first book is a middle grade nonfiction book that celebrates Chinese food and folktales. And the second is a picture book that provides a gently mythological explanation to what happens when nighttime falls. Publication for the first title is set for fall 2023 and the second for fall 2026. Wow, Grace I think this Lin. is our first 2026 book Graceland, og asian american author woo <laughs> yeah both of these stories sound great um i don't think i don't know if i'll have any young niece, nephews or nieces in 2026 but i'll definitely you know if there are any kids that i think needs a good alternative to good night moon i would get them little night says good night i feel like we need more diversity in bedtime stories I mean, I think anything can become a bedtime story. Like, just read at night and it's a bedtime story. (laughs) But Grace Lin has been, um, like I said, like an OG in the Asian American uh, writing sphere. She is the author of, um, like, the Year of the Dog, Year of the Rat, pretty much like the Chinese Zodiac chapter book series. Uh, She is the author of the picture book, A Big Mooncake. Um, so a lot of like the um, like early Chinese New Year holiday books were written by her. So I'm really excited to uh, see more contemporary works from her. So congratulations to Grace. Yeah. All right. Next up, Random House Imprint and Schwartz Books bought in an exclusive submission World Rights for Born Naughty, My Childhood in China. Written by debut author Jin Wang and with Tony Johnston. This nonfiction chapter book featuring illustrations by Anisi Baigude recounts the story of the author's hard-scrabbled, adventure-filled, and joyful childhood growing up in a tiny mud hut in Inner Mongolia. Publication is slated for summer 2024. Wow. We don't really see that many books about uh, Mongolia. Yeah, especially Inner Mongolia. Um, I actually had a friend from Inner Mongolia. Um, oh, really? Back in grad okay. school. Uh, but yeah, they're, um, you know, like many cultures um, in modern China, they're in the midst of um, modernization, which, you know, for them is also, there's no tension between that and their, you know, their nomadic roots. And so uh, I don't know how much this story will go into that. But definitely, if they're an adult now, their childhood is probably filled with, with like a lot of stories during that transitional period. Yeah, it sounds like a very interesting read. 
Yeah. Yeah. Born Naughty. What a great title. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, Random House acquired world rights to Welcome Pink by Lan Cham. Um, this picture book is about a girl named Pink who finds herself in a new world ruled by two rival creatures and must learn to navigate the complex emotions of being caught in the middle of an argument. Publication is set for summer 2024. This sounds harrowing. Um, there's no worse place to be than in between two arguing people. Two rival creatures. I wonder what the creatures are. So many questions. It's really hard for us to go by such a short description for uh, picture books. Right. All right. Next up, Kids Can Press bought world rights to Red Roti, written by Namita Mulani Mehra and illustrated by Bina Mistry. Set during the partition of India, the picture book follows the difficult journey of a girl who discovers that her love of cooking can bring a taste of home to heartbroken family members and refugees. Publication is set for fall 2024. We're getting more and more picture books like set during this period, during the partition of India. And I really love it because obviously one book isn't going to cover all of the topics that you would like. So um, it's nice that um, like kids can read more about this time period. Yeah. And like we said before, you know, these are histories that aren't really taught in history class. And so I think if we have a more saturation of media that talk about this time period, it becomes part of the, it becomes part of our common knowledge that this is something that happened to India. This is why there's India and Pakistan. This is why, you know, even today we feel the after effects of British imperialism and sure it's not always fun stories to learn, but, I think we need to learn about the bad stuff that happens to the world too, to, again, make conscious decisions to become better in the future. Um, yeah, so. but this book also sounds pretty happy. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't sound all doom and gloom because it's about a, a girl who, you know, learns that her love for cooking can, you know, help heal her community. And it's true. Um, in a lot of Asian cultures, food is love. So it yeah. makes sense. Yeah. All right. Um, next up, Wednesday Books acquired at auction Scroll of Heaven, the first title in the Guardian of the Scroll duology. Uh, written by Shannon Lee, the daughter of Bruce Lee, and Fonda Lee, um, the author of the Greenbone Saga. In the story, 16-year-old June trains and dreams of competing in the Guardians Tournament, which is held every six years to determine who will be named the top warrior of West Longhan and deemed worthy of protecting the sacred scroll of heaven. With the ambitious journal Kobu stoking war in East Longhan, this year's tournament will be especially dangerous and fraught with national consequences. But Jun is eager to prove himself as the realm's best martial artist and earn riches and status, even if that means setting aside the slim hopes of healing a childhood wound. Publication is set for spring or summer 2024, with a second book slated for spring or summer 2025. Wow. That is... Probably the meatiest description we've had <laughs> this episode, but I'm excited to see new stuff from Fonda Lee. You know, it's been a while. It's been a little bit since she wrote, finished her Greenbone saga. I think she wrote a novella in between, but it's really cool that she's teaming up with Shannon Lee. Um, love a good tournament storyline. Um, I'm getting some East West Germany vibes here in terms of like, you know, rival nations. Maybe there's some Cold War influences in there as well. Um, but yeah, finally is great at writing action. And, you know, she's already done one epic martial arts series. So I'm excited for this new one. Yeah, yeah, me too. It sounds really fun. 
All right, next up, Simon and Schuster acquired world rights to the Rainbow Bangles by Thustanti Panwira and illustrated by Matili Joshi. The book follows best friends Selvi and Divya who live in Sri Lanka's tea country, but whose mothers work overseas. Uh, and they have to d- navigate jealousy and loneliness when only one girl's mother returns. Publication is scheduled for spring 2024. I think this is a story that a lot of... Um, what do you call it? Salad, satellite kids? I think that's like the the term for, for kids who are being raised by relatives in Asia while um, the parent is working mm, abroad. I'm not sure if that is the term. Um, maybe. I know parachute kids is when the kids get sent overseas. Uh, okay, so I just looked it up. Satellite babies refer to immigrants' children who are temporarily sent back to their home country by their parents to be reared by their extended family. Okay, so that's okay, so it's a little parachute. different. Yeah. yeah. I think it's something that especially people who grew up in poorer countries are probably more familiar with because you know, when there's no work in at home, you have to go abroad. And while it's commendable for parents to work so hard to like put in so much effort to work to support their families, that also does a number on the kids, right? It kind of forces you to grow faster and become more independent. Yeah, yeah. And I can only imagine just like how jealous you can be, how heartbreaking it can be to see if like your your friend who is going through uh, this pain with you, like now they have their mom back and you're just watching with envy being like, why is my mom not back? Like what's what's keeping her she's made so many promises to visit or to come back but she hasn't yet so i think yeah. it is um i mean this is a picture book and i think it really has like a powerful message um yeah i appreciate that there's a book you know as always that can represent different types of upbringings and points of view not only for the people who live through it but also the people who have people in their lives who may be going through this and you know that's this is where empathy comes from um, so yeah, congrats on that book deal. Um, all right. And our last deal of the episode, Learner Kara Roda bought world rights to The Rock in My Throat by Kyle Kyla Yang, illustrated by Jim A. Lin. In this picture book memoir, a Hmong refugee girl navigates life at home and school in America while carrying the weight of her selective mutism. Publication is slated for spring 2024. Selective mutism. So is that... I'm guessing that that is what the title is referring to, the rock in my throat. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. Um, yeah, I mean, we've seen, I think we've seen a couple of books that kind of follow this theme of refugee kid coming to the States and the culture clash and the struggles of kind of fitting into this new world that they you know, didn't ask to come to. And I think refugee stories is an important part of the American stories, right? Our country takes in a lot of refugees. And because of that, you know, you'll probably meet, work with, grow up with, you know, have contact with people who were refugees at some point in your life. So, um, yeah, I love seeing these stories and I love seeing more of them. So congrats on, you know, getting this out in the world as well. All right, that is a wrap on our book deals for October. Now we're going to move on to news. And the first piece of news that we have is Constance Wu's book, Making a Scene, released earlier this month on October 4th. Um, If you've been in the Asian American community, you've probably seen clips of interviews with uh, Constance talking about um, her book. And her book is a collection of essays. Um, It talks about her upbringing in Richmond, Virginia, um, how she was told from a young age how good girls don't make scenes. 
And it goes on to um, topics about like mental health and uh, her sexual assault and harassment on the set of um, Fresh Off the Boat and um, more things about just being an Asian American woman in this day and age and also being a part of the entertainment industry. Uh, Marvin, uh, what did you have? What have you heard about this book in the Twitter sphere? Yeah, I mean, you know, as as a book club podcast, we I don't think either of us had any, any idea this book was coming. Um, you know, I, it really I, was I, a surprise. I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> I feel like we would have announced this if the book deal was like part of yeah. the news, you know? And I feel like that's part of probably whatever their published this team. I mean, they probably knew that this book was going to do well because of the you know, something that you mentioned, um, stuff that happened on Fresh Out the Boat. Um, but the, the the big thing that happened was that the backlash to her tweet um, when I think it was season five was renewed. Um, that drew a lot of ire from the Asian American community um, and essentially drove her underground afterwards because we haven't heard anything from Constance um, since then. And, you know, after Fresh Out the Boat, and Crazy Rich Asians, she was attached to a lot of things. Like she was attached to the adaptation of Goodbye Vitamin. She was going to play, you know, the lead role in um, Mr. Malcolm's List. And instead, we haven't seen anything from her for the last few years. And this was like the first we've heard of her since then. And it was like, of course, the initial wave of you know social media buzz was about this being her response to explaining her side of the story to that Twitter backlash. And I think... You know, it's always, I don't know, representation, I don't know if you call it politics or just representation in general, just like representation feels, I guess, or I guess rep sweats, that's what it is, is a heck of a thing, right? Like on one hand, it's great to be able to, you know, have people or have things that you can look forward to that really give you a sense of being seen. But on the other hand, like when that representation becomes essentially an identity or a monofocus. Um, it can lead to things like this, where if someone steps out of line, if someone does, does something that you're, you personally don't agree with or doesn't fit with your narrative of like, we need to, you need to take one for the team. Um, it can blow up and, you know, the internet being the internet, it can blow up in really ugly ways. And, you know, Constance was the target of that. And, I think it's interesting to see the community hopefully reflect on itself on like their own actions during this time because, you know, nothing is ever cut and dry. Everything is complicated. And I think. um, Especially when it's the first Asian American like family sitcom in like over 20 years. Obviously, there is a lot of skin in the game. Obviously, there's a lot of expectations. And if you're like, if this is like your first breakout role in the industry like it's a lot of pressure and people are expecting you to like be like the shining beacon of the asian american entertainment community and it's like you didn't sign up for this you're literally just an actor who got your big break um yeah but of course like that's what happens when you're a person of color or a marginalized person in an industry that yeah. doesn't have a lot of representation. <laughs> yeah, we've seen this happen to a lot of, especially women, right? We've seen this happen to 
Lucy Liu when she goes on interviews saying, oh, I want to be known as an actor, not an Asian actor, right? And, you know, that can be seen as her wanting to be, like, her taking her craft seriously, but it's always taken the wrong way by certain elements in the community saying, oh, why don't you, why aren't you proud of being Asian or you just don't want to be Asian? And I think, I think it's People twist things. Yeah. And, you know, by all accounts, Constance is that type of actor. Like, she's in it for the craft. She wants to be a good actor. Um, but because of all this added pressure, it's hard to, it's hard. And, you know, it's also the age of social media. Like everything you say or do is scrutinized to the nth degree. And so it's just hard to exist sometimes. And so I'm, I'm glad to see that she's telling her side of the story. I'm, sorry, I'm glad to see it's being received so well too, right? You know, she's um, told stories that, you know, She's been getting apologies from people who came down on her. Um, you know, once people learn the full picture, you know, I, most people are able to reflect, right? And I think, if anything, that's a silver lining to, to the whole, to the whole story. Yeah, because like afterwards, like after her uh, Twitter backlash, like she had posted an apology saying, like, oh, like I just kind of lost it because, um, you know. Like, I had already prepared for these new roles and, you know, like, and now I'm going to say goodbye to these opportunities. And people were criticizing her for that. But when that was like the first apology and I was like, that's fine. You're allowed to hate your job, especially if you've been doing it for like five years. And then you find out later. Yeah. And especially when she didn't, you know, then I guess she wasn't ready to mention that she was being sexually harassed on on set. Yeah. But like. You know, like that, that was like the explanation, but the true explanation, which she withheld until uh, she released this book, was that she was going through major depression and she made suicide attempts. So it's like, yeah, like that backlash from the community definitely did trigger uh, something in her. And she talks about therapy in her book. I really do want to read her book. Uh, I'll probably pick it up later this month make it a make it a holiday read i guess for me yeah and you know something we learned also is just she was being sexually harassed by a producer from that show and she doesn't name names but i mean if you know who produces that show i think it's i think everyone in the asian american community knows now who that person is it is very obvious however uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but congratulations on Constance Wu on uh, coming out with this book. I'm sure it was a very uh, painful process. It's not easy to come out from three years of radio silence in in the social so- social media world and then come out with like a big, I guess, book like this. So yeah. All right. Our next piece of news is very short. Uh, Meredith Ireland, who we've had on this show, she is the author of The Jasmine Project. Her sophomore book, Everyone Hates Kelsey Miller, released on October 11th. And as any author excited on release day, went to Barnes & Noble to see if um, her book was in stock and maybe sign some books. And she found out that no copies were at Barnes & Noble. None would be in stock at any Barnes and Noble because of the new policy of like Barnes and Noble saying like we're not going to stock mid-list titles unless there is like a overwhelming demand for it, quote unquote overwhelming demand. So we're already seeing um, 
like we we mentioned this a couple of episodes ago on on a news podcast, but how this would affect authors of color and also queer authors, and we are seeing the the effects of it now. Most of the people whose books are not in Barnes and Noble anymore are people of color or they're queer. So Meredith yeah. Ireland's book is also <laughs> it's also queer. It's about a demisexual. So I'm just like. Wow, that really, really fucking sucks. But she went on Twitter. She tweeted about how upset she was and how she wasn't really sure what to do because, you know, the biggest retailer in books in the country isn't stocking her book. Like, how are people going to find it? And uh, this started, like, a lot of conversations on book Twitter about just how we can support authors moving forward and how this policy is just like not great to anyone (laughs) yeah it's real it's real dumb i feel like it may make sense to them in for a business perspective but at the same time you're not going to be able to sell the same books over and over again and also make money like you need to switch it up um it sucks in terms of like Sure, you can make the argument that people who want to find a book will find it, right? They'll go online and they'll find it. But this isn't about that. This is about, you know, people go to bookstores to browse and see if there's anything that catches their eye. And if your book's not there to be browsed, then what? Are they just going to pick up that book series that will never be named for the hundredth time, you know? Also, like, you know, uh, publishers, they look at book sales and say, oh, well, we're not going to invest in, you know, authors of color because they don't make as much sales as our other books by white authors. And I'm like, yeah, maybe it's because you don't actually stock their books in the biggest bookstores across America. Maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> anyway, um, it just... It just reminded me of all those naysayers uh, a couple of months ago who were just like, it's okay. I mean, like, bookstores are businesses, too. It's not going to, like, affect, you know, authors. Like, it's not going to affect – it's going to affect authors across the board, not not just, like, authors of color and not, like, specifically queer authors. I'm like, let's see, in about two, three months. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um- So uh, our next piece of news, uh, according to Deadline, Bound Entertainment is teaming up with author Anne Liang to develop her genre-bending YA debut novel, If You Could See the Sun, as a series. Uh, If You Could See the Sun came out last week as of recording this podcast. So this is like fresh off the press. Um, And... The novel, according to the publisher Inkyard Press, it follows Alice Sun, who has always felt invisible at her elite Beijing International Boarding School, where she's the only scholarship student among China's most rich and influential teens. But when she starts uncontrollably turning actually invisible, like really invisible, um, and when her parents drop the news that they can no longer afford her, her tuition, she decides to hatch a plan to monetize her new strange invisibility powers. She discovers scandalous secrets her classmates want to know, and everything comes at a price. So um, this sounds really interesting. Kind of sounds it like has Gossip a Girl, real, like, but with a ghost. <laughs> yeah, it has a real 
cater my C drama like vibe to it too. You know, listen, like I love school. any book that has just that takes place in boarding school. Like <laughs> automatically just like at the top of my to be read pile. Because- yeah. And you know, I maybe this is me reading too much into it, but I, I can kind of see it as an allegory of just how business works in Asia. Like it's all about favors and secrets and you can't exist in that space without getting corrupted sooner or later i like this power though of like someone who feels like they they are invisible and then they turn actually invisible and they're like huh (laughs) i'm okay with this how can i use this to my advantage i'm like yeah if i could turn invisible i would probably do the same thing because i'm a bad person i would extort my powers for monetary gains i mean i feel like it's not a big stretch to say that like most people of the super rich variety have tons of skeletons in their closets and tons of secrets and also don't see, and we, we saw this in like parasite, right? They don't see normal people as people. So it's real easy to be in there and like kind of know things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like yeah, so. more, I'm like excited to, to like know what the scandalous secrets are. Cause like, <laughs> you know, you know, these rich kids, they've been to wild parties and stuff. I'm like, yeah. what have, like, what are they hiding? What are their skeletons? <laughs> Yeah, well, excited yeah. to learn about the series. It's always great to see more books being picked up. I feel like we'll see if this ever becomes more tangible. You know, we've seen a lot of books get picked up on deals and those projects kind of peter out. So, um, but yeah. I feel like there's a lot of demand for this type of story which of the eat the rich sort, right? So I think, you know, this one has a pretty good shot of making it through. Yeah, and Bound Entertainment, um, I believe... It's like a Seoul and L.A. based company. So they do have like an Asian team. I mean, granted, that's a Korean team and not like a Chinese team. However, um, it's just reassuring to know that, oh, yeah, like it is in Asian people's hands telling Asian people's stories. Always a good sign. Always a good sign. (laughs) All right. So our last piece of news is real quick. It's about the HarperCollins Union. Uh, Three months after their one-day strike on July 20th, the HarperCollins Union voted to authorize another strike. This time it's going to be open-ended. And this is... Some, and this is from the senior production editor in Children's Books and Union Chairperson, uh, Laura Hashberger. Uh, she said, we have been bargaining for 11 months towards an agreement that would make HarperCollins a more accessible, equitable, and just workplace. Once again, the members voted to authorize a strike because the company refuses to agree to a fair contract for the employees that make it so successful. Um, so it turns out this time around, I think it was like, 194 to 10 people saying yes for a strike. So overall majority is like, yes, let's go on a strike. And um, if their terms are not met, if their terms are not met by November 7th, the strike will start again. So um, it's a big deal in publishing right now, considering that every single industry is laying off people. HarperCollins recently laid off like uh, a couple hundred people and it's just a question of where's the money going since harper collins made record sales the last two years and yeah. they're paying their workers pennies so we were just like where's the money going yeah i mean i think we're pretty pro-union here on this podcast and then we support the workers because i think 
yeah, capital should be used to improve the lives of workers and the people who actually help you make the money. Um, I think you can afford it. Why not just do it, right? And it's hard because the mechanisms of our capitalist society make it hard because if you do something like the thing is like, like these people could do their jobs probably for less, but they shouldn't have to, right? Just because they could doesn't mean they should. But, you know, in terms of how corporations see this, it's like, well, if they could do that for less, then they should just do it for less. If we can pay you less and get the same amount of output, that means more money for our shareholders. And that is more important to us. And so they need to strike this balance, right? Like the biggest thing in like, and this is like, okay, this is like Marvin's business soapbox, but like what a lot of corporations don't, look at is long-term growth, right? They look at things like, how can our shareholders get the biggest dividend this quarter? When they should be looking at, how do we make sure our shareholders keep getting money 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? And the only way to really do that is to not wear down your workers so much to a point where like it's not worth it for them to do their jobs because then there's no industry and there's no money. And in the end, you still get fired for tanking your stock price. So I don't know. It's, for like just for reference for people who don't really know what it is like to work in the publishing industry um so like the starting salary for like an entry level um editor position let's say it's like around 35,000 per year and i'm just like are you kidding me that is like a skilled yeah. position you are literally reading 120 page manuscripts every day writing notes, writing copies on like book descriptions, jacket descriptions, press releases. Yeah. And publishing companies are headquartered in like expensive cities, right? In New York City. I mean, now it's like because of the pandemic, it's kind of made it a a little bit easier for remote working. However, they still demand you to show up in New York or be in the tri-state area. Yeah. 35K is not enough to live in New York. Oh, no. And like you barely get raises. And just like the amount of stress you have because of just like constant deadlines too is it's it's just a lot. And after seeing the DOJ uh, versus Penguin Random House, uh, you, you know, like the the trial where they where Penguin Random House was going to acquire Simon and Schuster and uh, the Department of Justice was just like, yeah, that's not uh, that's not legal. I mean, you would control <laughs> like most of the publishing industry if you did that. It just goes to show that like that trial really showed me that the CEOs and like the high executive people at publishing companies have no idea how the publishing industry works. They have no idea how much money they're making, what books are making that money. They're just running on assumptions. And it's just like, why are you not paying your workers more? Clearly you have the money, but you don't even know where the money's coming from. So you can't like organize a payroll that makes sense. That that's my soapbox. I mean, yeah. Support and, your you know, unions. Support Harper Collins. Don't like they're they're going on strike, but that doesn't mean you should like boycott Harper Collins authors. Authors need to to live and eat. Just yeah, you know, support them. And you know, hopefully this will end in them getting the deal that they want and the publishing industry becoming just a teensy bit more equitable and more better. Um, 
But you know, because if Harper Collins has to agree, then the rest of the big five have to agree on on terms. In yeah. best case scenario, but. best case scenario, best case scenario, we get a little bit of incremental improvement, which in our capitalist society is probably the best we can hope for. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is it for our mid-month episode of October 2022. Thank you for uh, hanging on till the end of this very long episode. Yeah. Um, Rira, just as a reminder, what are we reading for book club this month? Okay, so our October book club pick is The Hole by Hae Young Pyun. It is a Korean novel, a Korean psychological thriller about uh, loneliness and dark truths. And there is also a Japanese book by the same title, but we are not reading that. We are reading the Korean one. Yeah, looking forward to uh, engaging in this spooky text with you um, in a week or two at this point. Um, but with that, that'll do it for our mid-month check-in uh, for October 2022. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about The Collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, We've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.